You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting The Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. How nerdy are you feeling today? Very. Because we're about to move that up a notch. I know, and I'm so excited. Music and history. Yes. And Lutheran. Yes. All in one concise episode. Actually, there might be multiple episodes. We'll see where this goes. Our guest today is Benjamin Kologi, church organist, musicologist, and regular guest here on the coffee hour. I, I'd say regular. We have you on as often as we can when we have interesting topics in <laughs> church music. Thank you so much for joining us today, Benjamin. Thanks for having me today. It's great to be in person. Finally, I've never been in person with you guys. This is so wonderful. Fun. Yes. It's very exciting. So Benjamin made a trip to St. Louis to do some research and said, I'm going to be in St. Louis if you want to get together to talk about church music stuff. And I said, well, what are you researching? <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> and you, you can say it better than I can. What is the topic of your research currently? Well, to summarize, <laughs> I am researching the first hundred years of music, music history, liturgy in the LCMS. So I'm just saying 1850 to 1950, although we know the actual date 1847 to 1947, but I'm just saying 1850 to 1950. What are the important things that happened? The important people, what did they do? And importantly, also, what are the lessons that we can learn from mm-hmm. our ancestors in the faith and in our, in my case, as a musician, ancestors in my vocation? We have so many practicing church musicians in the Lutheran Church. I think they have a lot to learn from the examples of our ancestors. So where does one even begin to do <laughs> research on one the first 100 years of music in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod? Well, let me just tell you how I came across with this, how I started this project. Yeah. And it came from a lady named Connie Seddon. She was active in St. Louis Lutheran Circle. She was active at the Concordia Historical Institute. Her father was Walter Buzine, and Walter Buzine was, have you heard of him? Yes. Yeah. He was essentially the first musicologist Mm -hmm. in the LCMS. He taught a number of places, but he was educated in, in, not only in the LCMS, but educated in Europe. So that was her father. In the 1940s, Walter Buzine and Theodore Grabner, who was Mm -hmm. editor of The Luther Witness, and he also taught at Concordia Seminary here in St. Louis, they got together and they both of them had decided Lutheran musicians are being forgotten and from the past. We need to identify who these people are, find out something about them, and write articles in the Lutheran Witness so that our people know who these musicians were before they're forgotten. Okay, this is nineteen mid-1940s that this was happening. Well, and sadly, Gravener died, I think it was 1950. And then it became a committee of musicians. And, you know, when you have, whenever you have a committee of musicians, things <laughs> tend to die. So that's exactly what happened. So Connie Seddon acquired her, her father's archives. And so much of his work is at Concordia Historical Institute, where I'm working this week. But she had some others that, through, through uh, various means, I ended up with, uh, so that, and I agreed to do, to do research. So... 
Theodore Graebner and Walter Buzine basically established the parameters for what I'm researching. So in order, in other words, the people. And of course they have, and then Connie said and added to it through the years and she added her own research and everything. So it's my job to go through this, figure out who really do we need to remember who, who are the most important because we don't have enough space to go through, you know, we can't do everything. But so from the space of 70 years distant from that conversation that Gravener and Busin were having, I think I have a pretty good idea now of which ones we need to, we need to focus on. So I'm, I'm starting with their framework and I'm here this week because I'm going through the Concordia Historical Institute archives, which is a place, it's actually not where I started. I started on my own and with her archives and I've gotten really far from her archives and the, where her archives send me. There's a lot of hymnals that are digitized on Google Books, so I can do a lot of that at home. But you you want to be in an archives and you want to touch the paper and read it. And so that's why I'm here. So that's kind of how the project started and kind of the framework mm-hmm. that I have. This sounds so cool right now. <laughs> I want to just like come with you. And have you explain all the stuff you're finding? Because I'm, I've, I've seen some of your pictures on Facebook of, of the, some of the things you've been finding, and it's just fascinating, the things that people have saved, and the history that may have seemed mundane at the time. That now, for you doing this research, is so important because it, it actually gives us a snapshot of some of the stuff that was happening, what 150 years ago. So, well, you bring up. You allude to a point that we don't often talk about or write down or put in our diaries or journals that the mundane things that we do. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes in church history, the mundane things are how we sing hymns, mm-hmm. how, how we do choir music, how we distribute choir music, how we choose choir music. All those are mundane things that we have to do all the time that we just want to get them done. And um, so... It's these things that have been forgotten. For example, so yesterday, I think I posted this on my Facebook. I found I found essentially a church bulletin from December 3rd and 4th, 1865, from Trinity uh, St. Louis, Walter's Church. Mm-hmm. And those are the things you do not find because they are so mundane. You know, if you go to a church that has a church bulletin, and you, 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 you know, maybe it sits in your car for a few weeks in your back seat and then it, <laughs> it ends up in the trash can. Well, that's, that's the way things go historically too. So to have, have a church bulletin outlining the liturgy and the readings and the hymns for December 3rd, 1865 is a very important church. That's exciting for me as a historian and a musician. So what are the things, uh, what are the, you said there were parameters, like someone set the parameters for the research that you're doing. What are those parameters? What what determines what who makes it in this list? Like who makes it in the top 10 list of this 100 years of church music history? Well, that's a good question. And sadly, well, the parameters are the people. Mm-hmm. I'm focusing them on the greater topics, the context of liturgy and music and hymnody through the people. Uh, their through their lives, through their careers, through their witnesses. So it, so I'm I'm selecting these people, and 
up till now, I've I've done about nine or ten, um, and they're basically all that were on Grabner's and Buzine's list. So I'm not making up anything yet. I'm not adding anybody or taking anybody away. I don't have to just make those justifications yet. There may come a point where I have to, but this is, well, we'll come to a point because they have lots of names on the list. So I've selected the ones, for example, they started with CFW Vaulter, which honestly, I I wasn't going to pursue that one because there's been so much academic work on Vaulter. I mean, and plus he's written so much. I, I didn't think there was anything more necessary on that. But as I've kind of gotten into him, I, I see why they added him. And I've I've uncovered some things about him as a musician, which I think add to the knowledge about him. So so I come to it with a certain humility that even though I may my initially I initially may think that, well, this person, I, I need to skip over this person. I need to figure out why they're on the list and pursue them accordingly. Mm-hmm. It's like history detective over here. Mm-hmm. Totally, completely. That's so cool. <laughs> so you have Walter as one of the people. Who are some of the other people on that list right now? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> the second person on their list was Ferdinand Vinter. Hmm. And he was actually with Walter and because the, the Walter brothers, CFW and Otto, came over the same time yep. in 1838 39 mm-hmm. but venter was on that first group of immigrants who settled in perry county well, st louis and then perry county mm-hmm. so he was a teacher he was trained in in germany and came over like they all did seeking religious freedom i think that's also important too it wasn't just where I'm from in Texas, we have a lot of Germans in the hill country mm-hmm. who came because of the Adelsverein in the 1830s for economic opportunity. Mm-hmm. But these German Lutherans came f- to practice their, their faith. And Winter was impor- an important part of that because he was a teacher. And as a teacher, he was just as much a musician as he was a teaching of non-musical subjects. So he's in that first generation. And so when you ask about the parameters... The LCMS didn't exist in, in 1839. We right. we know that, but these are important personages who will be who mm-hmm. will be a part of the LCMS. So Venter, who was, who established himself ultimately in Perry County in Altenburg, was an important figure in that first generation. What would we have known about Venter's formation as a teacher? What did that look like? Do we know anything about his formation as a teacher compared to that of a parish pastor. Yeah, so that's a good question. And without getting into the specifics, you know, getting into the weeds, let's that's say... okay. We can get into the weeds. weeds. That's fine. <laughs> I do too. I do too. I try to avoid that. But he was classically trained. As a classically trained... In, in, in the day in, in Germany, they were called... They're called seminaries. You, you went as a teenager, a boy, went as a teenager... You essentially, it, like the gymnasium mm-hmm. model, yeah. You it was late high school, early college, say you graduated around 21, 22, and your education was, it was arithmetic, you know, math, uh, penmanship was also, was one, the, reading the classics, uh, languages, music, so sacred music, music history, music reading, organ playing, violin playing, 
and piano. Uh, so everybody kind of got the same. Then you could become a, you could go on and go to official seminary and become a pastor, which many of them did. But in Venter's case, he would have would have gone through. He went to the gymnasium manner, and so he was qualified then to teach in the rural. It was it was. I mean, mm-hmm. he he wrote of snakes falling from the from the roof on his head. You know, so he comes from this very sophisticated educational background in Germany to rural Missouri. It must have been quite a transition for him. Oh, but, but I think the point is that they were. All of these people were trained thoroughly mm-hmm. and well and professionally. We are learning about 100 years of church music history in the LCMS with Benjamin Kologi. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment right here on The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are learning about church music history. First 100 years of church music history in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod with Benjamin Kologi. All right, so we've talked a little bit about some of the early church musicians that we want to remember that you're learning about in your history. We've talked about Winter, who came from Germany. Were there others who came here from Germany in the early parts of your church music history that you've been researching? Or do we then, when do we move into those who were trained or formed as church musicians here in the States? We have a few more from Germany. So let's keep in mind that the pastors were all trained Mm -hmm. as musicians Mm -hmm. because they all had basically the same sort of holistic classical training. So the founders of the LCMS were all, were all very musical people. And it's, it's almost a false distinction to say, oh, well, this is a musician. This is a pastor. Mm -hmm. Well, pastors were usually musicians too. Musicians weren't necessarily pastors, of course, but that brings us to CFW Walter because originally he wanted to be a musician. That Mm -hmm. was his and apparently he was a very good one. There are accounts later in his life when he was in St. Louis that he would play the organ and people would know it was him, not because of bad reasons, but because he was so inspired. <laughs> he was so inspired in his playing that they, and that the supposedly they, they always wanted him to preach and to, and to play. That was like the best of both worlds in this the congregations of, of the four St. Louis congregations. So he, in later years, he even conducted, he conducted, uh, I think it was a Mozart mass and Haydn. He, so he was really, this is an aspect of Walter's personality that hasn't totally been explored. John Veeker has done a bit of work on this, um, which really set the groundwork for this. But 
we have to keep in mind that these there there was another an, another um, of the pastor immigrants who came over. Kale was his name, K E Y L, and he shipped over his piano, grand piano. And the legend has it that he set it up out in the woods when he got to Missouri, and he was playing all of his Chopin etudes and Beethoven. And apparently he was a very fine musician. And this is also underscored by the fact that when the ships sailed, they sailed to New Orleans, of course. And there was one ship that was lost, the Amelia. That was the ship that had an organ on it. It had sheet music, hymnals, possibly. It, it definitely had some sort of full orchestra a set of full orchestra instruments. We don't know really what that means, but all of that was lost. And I, the, the important thing about that is these people were starting a new life, but they thought it important enough to bring the, the organs and the clarinets and the oboes were not just unnecessary adjuncts to their living. It was important to, enough that they were going to pay passage and bring them over when they started their new lives. And those weren't necessarily for secular use. Those were for the organ was for sacred use. That was how important it was that these early Lutherans be able to practice their faith, do their liturgy, sing their hymns in as close of a manner as they would have been able to had they stayed in Germany. I can't even like formulate a question right now. My mind is just okay, kind I have of like, one. okay, go for it. Because so, I'm like, I'm processing this right now. So if if they valued, like like you said, all of the instruments of the orchestra, and they were lost on that ship that went down, do you think sense. what? Well, do you think that like full orchestra would have been more a part of American Lutheran worship? Had Ooh. those traditions continued? Had they not lost all of those instruments? Well, I, I mean that's only speculating, but and I I don't what I I if I answer that too specifically, <laughs> I'll also be speculating. <laughs> But you can look, you can look back to the cantatas of Bach. Mm -hmm. I mean, he yeah. had an orchestra, an orchestra in church. I, I'm not saying that these particular immigrants came from that sort of, their, their liturgical circumstances were probably much more modest. Those type of instruments might have been, you know, used in the home or, or something mm -hmm. like that. But I don't think it's out of the question that they had in mind ultimately that they were coming over here to set up mm. a, a, a place to practice their liturgy, their worship, the gospel freely. And music was a part of that. So I can certainly imagine that those instruments could have been employed in their worship. They certainly wouldn't have, haven't had, would not have had a philosophical problem against using them. Mm -hmm. I just think it's so interesting and it makes so much sense. I don't know why I'd never thought about that before. Cause like we have a, Sorry, I have to formulate a question here. Just word vomiting right now. We have a, a hymn from Walther in our hymnal. So, like, obviously he was musical, but thinking more deeply about how all of these new Lutherans to America were very musical, like it was a priority for them. That makes so much sense with the legacy that we have with music in the Lutheran church now and why it's still such a priority for us because it, it, and it was 
a priority back then. And I love that you're doing this research then because putting all of those dots together of who these people are that influenced all of that, it's going to be so interesting to read about. And CFW Walter was a complicated character. <laughs> yeah. He had detractors, he had friends, but he had a lot of loyalists. And I think, I think the fact that we are a musical church, I think he, he deserves a lot more credit than he gets. Yeah. So you referenced his hymn, He's Risen, He's Risen, 480. Erstanden, Erstanden, He's Risen, He's Risen, Christ Jesus. That, that, was, that was actually from a set of four hymns. I say hymns. It's actually like sacred folk that he wrote in 1860 when he was on his way to Europe. He was kind of convalescing, getting, getting better from a sickness he had. And so there are four hymns that he wrote, and he wrote exactly where he was. I, that one, I think, was off the coast of Florida or something. He wrote on the manuscript. But I, he, his, his manner of composition is, I call it sacred folk. I don't yeah. think that he meant for those, that hymn to be sung in church and the three others, oh. I think. But he envisioned... Lutheran singing, you know, there's never a time where singing is not appropriate. And so he was, I, I think he just wrote that particular hymn. It, it, it's, it's just as folk music to sing, but it did appear in our hymnals early. And Walter was a character who was, wasn't going to kick that out. <laughs> but, but he, his leadership, he inspired people to appreciate music in the church service. And I think that's, often overlooked by his other accomplishments and writings and theology and that sort of thing. Yeah, there's so much we know about him, but the, I'm, I'm sure the stuff that, that you're finding is, is stuff that a lot of people just don't know and don't realize. Are any of the people on your list people that were influenced by him? I know you talked about Vinter, but or it, do, how far does that influence go with, with the people that you're, you're researching? Well, I, maybe this doesn't answer your question exactly, but it's one <laughs> way right. to go with it. Because when the oh, the Lutherans established themselves in St. Louis, mm. of course, they established Trinity Church, 1842, which I found a program to that dedication service yesterday, oh. too, which was pretty neat. But one of the first things they did, so this was five years later, was Walter, well, he started earlier than that, collecting the hymnal, a hymnal, the uh, Kirchengesangbuch, mm -hmm. because that was so important. So you're talking about, how is this promulgated into future generations? That was his first approach. You know, it wasn't even, it wasn't even, let's establish trading institutions. Let's establish a hymnal that we're all using every Sunday that every family can have. And that was the uh, Kirchengesang book of 1847. It's really important. Um, Trinity paid for it himself, for themselves. Walter, like everything, he, he oversaw it. To great detail by himself, you know, but then they gifted it to the Synod, bestowed it to the Synod in 1862. And then it's published nonstop well into the 20th century. So, and, and when that hymnal was put out, Walter thought it was so important that people be able to sing these hymns that he'd have singstunde or singing hours at, at the congregations. So you'd gather in the evenings and I, I, I found references in the newspaper, like Tuesday nights or something, <laughs> at seven o'clock. And you, you, get, you just learn to sing hymns. And why is that important? Because they'd been singing hymns. They knew about hymns. But Walter wanted them to sing the rhythmic chorale. Because in, one of the reasons that they left was because, left Germany, 
I call it Germany, the German lands. You know, it wasn't Germany at the time, of course. Right. But but the, the rationalism was infecting their worship. Yeah. So rationalism evened out of the hymns. So that, and I know some people still they like the dum 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 dum. Whereas other people like da dum dum da da dum da dum dum. So the second one comes from the Reformation. That's Luther. The ironed out one comes from later. Doesn't matter which one you like. The important part is, <laughs> Walter wanted you to like and sing the original version. Mm -hmm. A mighty fortress is, which they did not know. That wasn't their background. So his hymnal promulgated those sorts of hymns in that way. Now, the hymnal, of course, it didn't have music until, well, actually, that one really never did. That was text only. So it was much up to the pastor, the organist, and the choir, if they existed, to lead this singing. But Walter wanted you to be able to sing the hymns in their original text, not changed, and the original tune. So you ask about promulgation to future generations. That's how we did it first, before it even got to other teachers and professors and performers and Church musicians, they first had to establish a hymnal, which they did quite successfully. It was published for decades. And I'm sure you have one of these. I have the edition from 1862. Uh -huh. Yes. I would I would love to have an 1847 if anybody. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> There's a call out. If you have one, Ben wants it. <laughs> we've learned so much in 100 years of church music history, and we haven't even made it out of like 18 <laughs> What? Almost, almost 1860. I was afraid that might happen. <laughs> Ten years down. Maybe, we'll, maybe we'll, we'll talk about this again in another episode. Thank you so much for this little bit of church history. We have more to cover in a future episode. Thanks so much for being our guest, Benjamin. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.